With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mom and Dad Are Fighting is sponsored by The Terrible Two, the hilarious new children's book series that's filled with pranks, hijinks, and cows. From New York Times best-selling authors and certified pranksters, Mac Barnett and Jory John. That's The Terrible Two from Amulet Books. And by Gemvara. Turn old jewelry or a loose gemstone into a new design setting you'll love. Choose from a variety of beautiful designs or customize your own. Right now, get 15% off the stone reset of your choice at stonereset.com slash momanddad. That's stonereset.com slash momanddad. And by Netflix, presenting the original documentary, My Own Man. When filmmaker David Samplener discovers he's about to become a father, his fear and insecurities send him on a quest to find his own manhood. My Own Man is streaming now only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, March 26th, the tampon falling out of your ear edition. I'm Allison Benedict, an editor at Slate and the mom of Harry 6, Sam 4, and Wally 2. And I'm Dan Coyce. I'm also an editor at Slate, and I'm the dad of Lyra, who is nine, and Harper, who is seven. And we are in the same room, in the same studio. It's so weird. Hi, Allison. Hi. Hi. Dan, Dan is standing, as usual, as yep. he likes to do to make me uncomfortable, and mm-hmm. I am sitting. Just the beginning of the ways that I undermine Allison in every single podcast. Usually she doesn't get to see it, though. On today's show, we'll talk to the author of a New York Times magazine piece about a new approach to sex ed, and then we'll talk about guns how best to protect your kids from them, if and how to ask other parents if they have guns in the house, and what we should be teaching our children about firearms. Also, parenting triumphs and fails, a listener call about hectic morning routines and recommendations. And for our Slate Plus segment, Slate's general manager, Brendan Monaghan, will swing by to share a parenting triumph or fail. But before we get to all of that, a few announcements. First, a reminder to check out Slate's new podcast network, Panoply, which features all your favorite Slate podcasts like this one, plus brand new podcasts that we're creating with other media outlets, authors, thinkers, and personalities. One that I'm particularly psyched about is The Labor of Love. In every episode, RealSimple.com editor Lori Leibovich offers advice to a couple whose source of tension stems from the everyday trials of managing a household and a partnership. Sound familiar? It does sound familiar. <laughs> wow, what a good idea Featuring for a podcast. Dan Coyce and... <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can hear The Labor of Love and other Panoply shows on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and on all major podcast apps. So go to iTunes.com slash Panoply to check it out. And if you are a fan of Slate and Slate Podcasts, please join Slate Plus. It's our membership program. You can get bonus segments on this podcast and on all your favorite podcasts, plus exclusive members-only podcasts and articles, plus events. This week, in fact, uh, Slate Plus members can RSVP for a special free happy hour with Julia Turner, John Swansburg, and the Mad Men TV Club before our boozy Mad Men premiere viewing party in Brooklyn. It is easy to join, and your first two weeks of Slate Plus membership are free. Go to slate.com slash fighting plus to sign up. 
And as always, please subscribe to Mom and Dad Are Fighting in iTunes or your favorite podcast app and keep spreading the word to parents and non-parents alike. Okay. Wait. I have a personal appeal to Ah, our listeners. Okay. Uh, Okay. So um, we are taking a grand and exciting trip this summer, our whole family, to Iceland. Me too? No, no. (laughs) My real family, Allison, not my work family. Uh, We are going to Iceland. It is our first ever overseas trip with the girls. How hip of you. I know. It is very hip of us. (laughs) We're going to stay with our friend Bjork. Um, No, but this is the first time that we have ever gone overseas with the girls. If you don't. Count the time that Fetus Harper went to Cancun because we booked a grown-ups-only weekend at a resort, an all-inclusive resort, and then Alia found out she was pregnant, and then she couldn't drink anything, and it was the worst. But so this is the first time they're actually going overseas as, hum- as like, live humans. So, anyway, Iceland. If you are an Icelandic mom and dad are fighting listener, and you have tips for me about what kids like to do in Iceland. We're talking to you, one person. Uh, I bet there's <laughs> dozens. There's dozens. So uh, if you are an Icelandic mom and dad are fighting listener, perhaps the only one, if so, you have a special onus on you to respond and you have tips for me about what kids like to do in Iceland or what family life is like in Iceland please email me you can email me you don't have to email our address email me at dan.coys at slate.com I really want to hear from you about family life in Iceland just to broaden that request for Dan because I'm looking out for you Dan if you've been to Iceland with your kids you could also I guess that's also (laughs) fine yes and then you're maybe more likely to email me in English and not hopelandish Okay, on to triumphs and fails. All right. I've got a fail this week. Yes. Uh, Finally. (laughs) Undermining in my direction. Um, I love how last week we, like, finally admitted that the the triumphs and fails might have, like, a gender component, but you, like, dad-splained that my fail was actually a triumph. Right. Because it really was. Um, And because I view the glasses half full and you view the glasses totally empty and shattered all over the floor. So my fail is that I'm a failure as a softball coach. Or rather, I triumph at coaching all the other kids at softball, but I fail at coaching Lyra at softball. So Lyra plays softball every spring. She's played for several seasons now, and I'm like the fourth assistant coach on the team. Um, And in past seasons, I've noticed that when I'm working like directly with Lyra on the practice field on some kind of or something, there's something that just like doesn't work about that combination on the field. It's like combustible. We both become the worst versions of ourselves. She becomes really moody and very easily discouraged and totally unwilling to work at anything. And I get really snappish and impatient and unforgiving. So we just instantly get in these cycles where I'm, I'm like great with all the other kids, but all my interactions with her are just awful and frustrating for both of us. So we had our first practice of the year last week and we instantly like instantly fell into this exact same pattern we were doing this drill where all the kids stood in a circle and we had this sort of irregularly shaped rubber ball that we would toss on a bounce to each kid so they could practice like uh, like irregular or unexpected hops and catching them and it's like a very simple little exercise and it's meant to be a game and fun and so lyra had one that sort of bounced weird and sort of gently hit her stomach as she was catching it and ordinarily i think if i had not been there she would have just been like ow and then carried on but instead she looked at me and then she like moaned and gimped around and like stared at me with her eyes welling up with tears for like five minutes while i tried to ignore her and then finally i just like couldn't take it anymore and i was like what's the problem And she's like, it hurt my stomach. And I'm like, I don't think it really hurt. And she's like, you don't understand me. And I was like, go sit down. And then it was just immediately, it was like, so it was like the rest of practice was just like a total waste. And I know that when I'm not at practice, 
she does much better. She doesn't worry about stuff as much. She doesn't get discouraged about bad plays. She doesn't fuss over like every little scrape she gets. She just plays the game. And I know that this is my fail. It's not her fail. It's my fail. She is nine and I'm 40. I should find a way to be a decent softball coach to my own kid, but I totally can't. And I'm like miserable at every softball practice. And I'm grateful, like not even, not even secretly grateful when I'm out of town for practice and I can't attend. So Why that is my fail. Why don't you just not do it? Uh, Sounds like it would be more fun for both of you. Well, I'm, I seem to be easing in that direction, but that still feels like a fail to me that I can't be the softball coach, the fourth string softball coach on my kid's softball team. It's a familiar dynamic to me. We're not we haven't like done any coaching like that, but actually last weekend John was throwing the ball around with Harry out back and I had to open the window and just lean down and be like, This is supposed to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Okay, well, well how about you? Because we're switching things up this week and because you told me to, I have a triumph. <laughs> uh, okay, so way, way back when we first started this doing this podcast, I talked about I think it was a fail. I think I talked about in the context of triumphs and fails how I was failing with Sam. That Harry gets a ton of attention because he learns everything new first, reading, writing, bike riding. And Wally gets a ton of attention because he's the baby and just kind of requires it. So it often feels like Sam as the middle child is getting screwed. One like tiny example recently is that you know Harry is old enough and has been for a while to read chapter books. So we've been going through the Narnia books. And Sam does not like them and cannot sit through them, and it's, like, not fun for him. And so he just, like, basically doesn't read with us at night anymore. It's a bummer, and, and I feel bad for him. So the triumph, you're like, where's the triumph? This doesn't sound this good. This sounds like a yeah. familiar fail so far, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the triumph is that I finally found an activity that has become our thing, that Sam and I just do together, um, and that we both really love. And it is that we go exploring in the park. We live really close to the park, Prospect Park in Brooklyn, and we spend a lot of time there as a family anyway. But Sam and I have now started going up into the trails. You can go up these stairs and sort of hike through the trails together on the weekends. We bundle up in the cold. And the only rule is that when we get to a point in the path where you can go left or right or, you know, have multiple options, Sam decides, which he loves. <laughs> right. And we've ended up most times in, like, parts of the park I've never been to. We've had to take a cab home before. <laughs> like, we've gotten really far. And it's awesome. He loves it. I really love it. It's been good for us. So. That is a great triumph. Yeah. Good thank job. You. Thank you. Uh, don't turn it into a fail in some unexpected way. I'll let you know how I Don't let him be I carried it, off by a hawk. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to a word from our first sponsor this episode. Uh, this week's podcast is sponsored by the hilarious prank-filled children's book series, The Terrible Two from Amulet Books. It is by New York Times bestselling authors, longtime friends, and certified pranksters Mac Barnett and Jory John. And it is the adorable tale of a kid who moves to a new town and tries to find a role for himself in that town. In his old town, he was always considered the prankster. But he finds that in this new town, there's already someone who has claimed that throne, someone who may even be a better prankster than him. It is a totally fun book. Lyra loved it. I loved it. We really recommend it. And we are super grateful to Amulet Books for advertising on the show. The book is called The Terrible Two. Once again, it is by Mac Barnett and Jory John. It is a perfect book for reluctant readers ages or grades one through four, I would say, maybe two through four. It's super funny and charming, and uh, it's full of facts about cows. Once again, The Terrible Two. Moving on. Okay. The first memory I have of my early sex education is hearing Holly and Amy talk about blowjobs in the temple bathroom during a Hebrew school break. At the time, I had no idea what a blowjob was, but I thought it had something to do with a hairdryer. 
Then Does it not? <laughs> it can if you wanted to. Uh, then when I was probably around 12 or 13, my parents sent me to a co-ed sex ed class at the JCC, taught by a really, really good friend of the family. Most of it is a blur, but I remember one thing very clearly. A boy in the class had a pin that he brought to the class that said, wine me, dine me, 69 me. And the teacher was forced to explain that to us, and I was horrified. Uh, I don't really remember how I eventually learned the rest, but I don't think it ever involved my parents. In this weekend's New York Times magazine, Bonnie Rockman writes about a new approach to sex ed, parents and kids attending classes on puberty and sexuality together. Bonnie went to one of these classes with her 10-year-old daughter and survived. She's here to tell us about it and about her piece, which is called Let's Talk Frankly About Sex and the State of American Sex Ed. Hey, Bonnie. Thanks for having me. So first, tell us about the class you attended with your daughter. Sure. Well, I actually attended originally with my son, and so I got to experience both of them. And one thing that this was particularly interesting about attending the class with my son was that I was one of, it seemed like, two, three women in the class out of about 70 men. So um, that was a totally unique perspective to be sitting there next to my my adolescent son and learning about sex with him. But so it's very atypical, it seems like, for sex ed classes to be taught to both parents and kids at the same time. It, well, how did you see that these classes changed the way that people were thinking about learning about sex? So there's a cultural narrative that has to do with, oh my God, puberty, it's absolutely the worst. So in this, these classes, they completely upend that narrative. So instead of puberty being a time to dread and a time when parents should, you know, kind of back out of the picture, they say that parents should be all in there, not in this high, pushy, in-your-face sort of way, but in this really lovely, supportive, I've-got-your-back kind of way. And you, you, know, you kind of have this epiphany when you're listening to these um, to this completely different narrative that it's actually within your power to make it to make it totally different than it was for you. This is a very different way of dealing with sex ed than the way that most people in America, even today, still get that kind of education. Do we know what do we know about the way that most kids learn about sex in the United States? Are there numbers or stats on that? Well, there's you know what's interesting is that there are some there are some national guidelines, but guidelines being guidelines. They're not rules. There's no specific standardized way that sex ed has to be taught. And sex ed does not even have to be taught in schools. The reason that it is taught in schools and has traditionally been taught in schools is because that's where the kids congregate. So, um, and as you can imagine, if it's being taught co-ed um, and in a school setting, it's usually very didactic, pretty clinical, and overall mortifying. And you can't ask any questions that you want because you would be the laughing stock of middle school. It's far from ideal. So this parent-child dynamic is a way to kind of reclaim that, this talk that has been seen in our culture as really, really awkward and really, really awful. Did you feel like after the class your kids were more comfortable actually talking about sex around you? Or did it, does it remain, you know, an uncomfortable topic? It just completely removed any taboos that there were, even between my son and me. Because it is so in your face and you are in this class sitting next to your kid, 
learning about wet dreams, um, laughing about dropping a tampon on the floor in a public space and what that feels like. They take you through kind of the worst case scenarios. In fact, in the girls' class, they even talk about what is it like if you get your period and let's, you know, let's think of the absolute worst scenario. Substitute teacher, he's a dude, you're wearing white pants, you're bleeding through those pants. What do you, how do you handle that? Like that could be, you know, that's sort of the worst scenario. So they, they walk you through that. You grab your sweater if you have one. If you don't, you grab a girlfriend's jacket. You wrap it around your waist. You motion to the substitute teacher, I need to go to the bathroom. You don't wait for an answer. You walk outside. You go to the bathroom, and you build yourself a pad from toilet paper. And then Julie Metzger, the instructor, asks all the moms in the class, ladies, you know, with a show of hands, how many of you have ever built yourself a pad? And every single hand in that room goes up. And, it's, and, and everyone is laughing. It's like this release because this is something you have never talked about, even with your best friend, the act of building a pad. You've never even conceptualized it like that. Yet here she is saying, hello, of course that's what you do. And you're going to have to do it over and over. And this is life, and you can get through it. It's a pretty incredible approach to this whole, you know, period of a kid's life. I love the good humor that it seems that Metzger deals with this class with. I love that story about uh, her dealing with uh, people's concerns about whether you can put a tampon in too far, and her saying, "No, it's not gonna, <laughs> the tampon's not going to fall out of your ear, for God's sake." Yeah, but I mean, that's completely everyone's concern. I mean, the first time you think about this is a tampon and this goes inside your body, it's it's horrifying. In the piece, uh, along with the piece, there's a slideshow of some of the questions. At the, at the beginning <laughs> of the piece, the, I mean, at the beginning of the class, the teacher says to the kids, write down whatever questions you have. You know, they don't have to put their names on it. And you describe, like, kids sort of, like, elbowing out their parents so they can write these questions without their parents seeing. And then later in the class, yeah. the teacher reads them and, and answers them. What were some of the things that the kids, the slideshow in the piece is really great. The questions are really great. But, but I'm curious if there were things that the kids asked that, like, you got a sense of, like, what kids are curious about that you wouldn't have thought of. So I'm going to just put a little spin on your question. So since they have been teaching this class for almost three decades, they pretty much know all the questions that are going to get asked. And the ones that they keep coming, you know, the ones that kind of the really most germane ones are, how do you know if you want to have sex with someone? Does it hurt to have sex? Does it hurt to have a baby? And they, I think they do a really good job of reading those questions and answering them in a way that feels super fresh, even though they probably answered these same questions hundreds, if not thousands of times. They make them personal, it seems like. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I can't say that there's a ton. I mean, there's nothing that surprises them, but because they are... And this is a performance for them. It's education, but it's like performance art. So the people who are attending the class have no idea. They're like, oh, my God, I totally stumped her. I've asked a question that she's never been asked before. And I think that was what was so fascinating about the class for me as a parent. Um, I was really, I was blown away by the different approach, like basically saying this is a time a celebration and a time for parents and kids to come together rather than to pull apart. All right. So if I'm a parent who wants to take my kid to one of these classes, do I have to live in Seattle? What's the story? No, you do not. (laughs) So most of the classes are taught in and around Seattle, in and around the Puget Sound area. However, 
They also have a pretty sizable outpost at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital um, in St- at Stanford. And they have taught before in Oregon. They've taught in Montana. But it's definitely, it's a West Coast thing. Although I've actually been told that since the article went online today, they've already been contacted by someone in Houston asking them to bring their show on the road. So whether or not they'll do that, I, I don't know. Well, our listeners should definitely reach out if they're interested in bringing them in. So the teacher's name, the creator of the course is named Julie Metzger. Her course is called For Girls Only. And there's one called For Boys Only. Is that right? Exactly. And the company is called Great Conversations. Thanks so much for joining us, Bonnie. It's a great piece. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, if you want to read Bonnie's piece, definitely we'll put it on our uh, page. It's called Let's Talk Frankly About Sex uh, in this weekend's New York Times Magazine. Okay, let's hear from our second sponsor. This week, we have a new advertiser, Jemvara. Many of us have jewelry that we're attached to because someone we love gave it to us or we bought it at a special time or for a special occasion. And sentimental attachment is great, but so is having jewelry that you actually like because you like the way it looks. Now there's a really easy way to transform, let's just say hypothetically speaking, an engagement (laughs) ring that maybe isn't really your style into a ring you love with Stone Reset by Jemvara. Using Gemvara Stone Reset, you can turn old jewelry or loose gemstones into a new design setting you'll love. StoneReset.com has a variety of beautiful designs to choose from, and it's super easy and fun to customize the design you like with your favorite metal and accent stones. Dan and I actually, like, customized pretend jewelry for each other. Yes, we it made it as fun. ornate and crazy as possible, but you are not <laughs> required to put quite as many gemstones on it as we did. You didn't like that one? Gemvara is offering 15% off for mom and dad or fighting listeners. So go to stonereset.com slash mom and dad to get the special listener deal of 15% off. Just fill out the form to get a prepaid insured kit, then click request package. Remember, that's stonereset.com slash mom and dad. Enjoy your still old, but also new, new jewelry. Okay, each week we take a listener call and try to answer it. If you have a question for us or one you'd like us to find an expert to answer, call us. Leave us a message at 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-RUDE. What Dan is to Lyra at baseball practice, Yep. softball practice. Yep. Now, on to this week's listener call from Jessica in Brooklyn. I guess I want to know, are mornings as terrible at everybody else's house as they are at mine? I have three kids, five, three, and a newborn, and mornings are just full of crying and yelling, not just from them, from me too, and I'm wondering if if your listeners have any suggestions for how to make morning routines go more smoothly. I have one child who's very angry and oppositional about everything in the morning, and another who's very sad about everything in the morning, like if his cereal is in the wrong cup, or I'm in the shower when he wants to snuggle, or his Superman shirt is in the wash. It's like everything is a tragedy in the morning. So I just wonder if there's any way to make mornings go more smoothly so I don't send crying, sad children off to school and so I am not like a angry, mean, horrible version of myself in the morning. Thanks a lot. I love the podcast. Bye. That is a great question. Mornings are definitely a work in progress in our house. Like, for instance, uh, yesterday, Lyra left the house in tears because she couldn't find the book that she wanted. And I was like, you're going to miss the bus. Get out, get out, get out. But... We do have some things that we do that really help make mornings orderly and some advice I can give. And I would be eager to see what our listeners have to say, too. But how do mornings work in your house, Allison? Well, I, I want to hear what you're, you were going to say. And I actually remember, I think one of your triumphs from long ago was letting Lyra read as much as she wanted to in the morning if she 
did everything else first. Yes. Yes. Do you still do that? Or we does still that do only that. Work momentarily. No, that still works, and that and that is sort of a, more broadly. That's one of my really big pieces of advice, which is, um, which is to just use rewards. Like more, I feel like mornings are a time where we're all lucky to get out alive, and so basically all rules are off in terms of rewards and bribes. And so, like for example, this morning when I needed to get the kids out the door, they knew I told them specifically as they started like getting dressed that if they moved quickly and did all the things they needed to do, um, and there was time before they had to leave for school, I had like this. I had a great video that I was going to show them, a short video I'd found that that I promised them that they would love. And they did, and they were really excited about that. And then when we had like six minutes before we still had to go, we watched this great um, Lord Voldemort-themed uptown funk parody video as seen on Slate.com. And it worked. It totally worked. If they hadn't... Had, like if there hadn't been enough time, if they hadn't moved fast, and then in the end you were like, "Oops, sorry, no time for video." Then would they have gone off to school like freaking out? Uh, they often get somewhat upset, but no more upset than they are on any typical morning. So I found it was basically a wash. Mornings for us are, I mean, it's everything's relative, right? So I was going to say like mornings for us are pretty okay, but I mean it all it always is like get your shoes, where are your shoes? <laughs> like you forgot your backpack. Uh, it always is the last five minutes. Everything's fine. We have it like very sort of schedule John and I trade and we have this whole you know system but the end is always a, a mad rush my advice is very very simple but like wake up a little bit earlier don't wake your yeah. kids and like wake up a little before your kids and like I don't know what the things are that you have to get done in the morning but we always run the dishwasher at night and then it's like so much easier to unload it in the morning before the kids are up and for us before like Wally is taking all the utensils out himself get their lunches, pack the night before, which we've never done. I don't think I've ever done that, but that's great advice. <laughs> uh, well, I would say, I mean, I, we have done stuff the night before, and I would specifically say that the night before is a great time to get done the things that are like pressure points in your morning. Right. So like choose the one thing that causes the most problem that is maybe solvable beforehand. Like for a long time, Harper was like so insane about what she wore every morning. And so we would have this like half hour debate about what it was that she was going to wear to school. And so we started just having that half hour debate the night before instead. And then she would lay out the clothes and wear them the next day. And like that really worked to just like remove a pressure point. We had a pressure point where like we wanted the kids to get dressed before having breakfast so that like after breakfast they were just ready to go and they really like hanging out in their pjs and we finally gave up on that and just let them hang in their pjs in the morning and then when breakfast is done they have to brush their teeth and get dressed and that was much better actually yeah so um the other piece of advice i would give and this sort of ties into what allison was saying is waking up a little early before your kids and getting stuff done for example if one of the problems you're finding jessica is that is that you are in the shower when your kids really want things from you. You maybe just need to do the shower before they wake up. Like I like I always want to be on my phone in the morning because I'm worried about a million work emails. And so I now try and just get up 10 minutes early and like knock out those emails before I wake my kids up so I'm not distracted by my phone, for example, when they need things from me. But also if your kid is having like a freak out because you put like maybe a few too many splashes of milk in his cereal – which has happened to me several times, like, we have no answer for you. No. He'll just grow out of it. He will. He will eventually <laughs> grow out of that. I mean, hopefully. All right. So great question, Jessica. Thank you. We hope these tips are useful. And listeners, please uh, send in your tips. If you have great morning routines or rituals that have really worked for your family, send us an email at momanddad@slate.com. Before we move on, Dan, what time do your kids wake up and what time are you out the door? Our kids wake up usually at 740 and we are out the door at 824. Wow. Yeah. Well, you move fast. Okay. We don't, we don't fuck around, man. No. no, no. 
All right, let's move on to a word from our third sponsor, My Own Man, a Netflix original documentary. Now, you, I'm sure many of our listeners know lots of Netflix original programming like Orange is the New Black or House of Cards, but Netflix also airs original documentaries, really good ones. And this one uh, that we're talking about today is about subjects that I personally think about a lot, about fatherhood, manhood, and our expectations of ourselves. The Netflix original documentary, My Own Man, follows director David Sampliner as he learns that he's about to become a father for the first time. David fears he must man up and finally embrace the latent masculinity he's rejected all his life. But as he immerses himself in a strange new world of masculine ideals, including vocal lessons, warrior weekends, and hunting, he realizes that all roads lead back to his own fraught relationship with his father. Intimate, funny, and moving, My Own Man is streaming now, only on Netflix. All right, let's move on to our second segment. This week in Garland, Texas, a 12-year-old boy was arrested and charged with manslaughter in the accidental shooting death of 13-year-old Henry Cisneros. According to police, the two were playing with a gun they found in Henry's home when it went off, killing Henry. Numbers on how many children in America are killed accidentally by guns vary widely, with estimates ranging from 60 per year to over 100. As risks go, there's, of course, a lower likelihood that your child would be killed accidentally by a gun than they are then that they would be killed driving in your car or swimming in a pool. But it is still a real fear that many parents have, in part because it feels like such a terribly, stupidly avoidable fate. When Lyra was in kindergarten, her best friend's mom mentioned to us that she was getting a gun for protection at home. I was really grateful to her for telling me that and worried about what to do. Should I let Lyra keep playing at this kid's house? Should I be asking all my kid's friend's parents if they have guns? Will I offend my neighbors and ruin my children's friendships if I make a big deal out of it? Well, so today we're bringing on two guests to talk to us about these questions. So first, we're joined by a parent advocate with the Brady Foundation's Ask campaign, Asking Save Kids. We're joined by Heidi Human, who's calling in from Washington State. Hi, Heidi. Hi. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining us today. And tell us a little bit about the philosophy behind Asking Saves Kids. So should I be asking every parent of every one of my kids' friends about guns in the home? Yeah, so, so here's the deal. Asking Saves Kids is this great program because when you live in a neighborhood with kids and there's, let's say, 10 homes with kids, four of those homes are going to have guns in them. And I don't know about you, but I, don't, I can't tell who owns guns and who doesn't. So the only way to know if a gun is or if a home is safe from kids finding guns would be if you asked the question. And so it's a, it's a really simple easy way to make sure that kids don't find guns that are, you know, not locked up or that are, are loaded. And so that this is a great way to stop these kind of accidental shootings that really are unintentional, not accidental, because it's up to us parents to make sure that kids are playing in environments that are safe from weapons. So if the answer is yes, if I ask a, a, a neighbor where my, at a house where my kids are going to play, and the answer is yes, what should my next questions be? Yeah, so the next question is, are the guns locked up, and is the ammunition stored separately? Um, I've been asking this question for, for several years, and um, it's, it's kind of awkward at the beginning, but what I figured out is, and a lot of parents have figured out, that it's, it's a safety question. It's not about gun ownership. It's about safety. So I ask, what's the rating of the movie the kids are going to be watching, or is are the kids going to be wearing seatbelts in the car when you guys go to the ice cream shop? This, these kinds of safety questions. And so this is just 
another one of those safety questions that's really important to ask. Are the kids going to be playing in a gun-free environment? If the answer is yes and you determine that the guns are secure, do you think it's important for your kids to have heard you had this conversation? Like, should they know that there are guns in that house, secured guns in that house? No, I don't think the kids need to know about this because this is a parent question and it's a safety question. It's it's our job as parents to make sure that the kids are in an environment that's that's safe. And so we as parents just need to make sure that we're asking this question, making sure the kids are in an environment that's safe from guns. Uh, so how secure are safes, really? Like I know of one house in my neighborhood that has both guns and uh, like a bunch of teenage boys who live there, uh, but also kids my kids' age. Am I crazy to want my kids never to go there, even though I know those guns are locked up in a safe? Well, I think the the key is just to make sure that the the guns are locked up in a safe, but that the ammunition is stored separately. That, I think, is where the kids are safe. So we want to, it's not about anti-gun. It's not about saying to a neighbor, I don't want my kids in your house because you have guns. It's about are they being responsible with their guns and are the guns stored safely so that the kids can't have access to them. So, no, I wouldn't advocate for keeping guns, a loaded gun, in a safe. So if for some reason or some way the kids get into that safe, they still, nothing's going to happen because the ammunition isn't anywhere near it. So I have cousins in Texas uh, who actually brought this up to me before I had ever considered asking the question. They have, like, started asking this question um, to their neighbors, and they, I think, assume that a large percentage of their neighbors do have guns. I live in Brooklyn, and I assume none of my neighbors have guns. Is that a faulty assumption? (laughs) It is a little bit faulty. I've been working with some people in New York, uh, in Manhattan, and, and I'm finding that that's not necessarily true. So they're not telling people that they have the guns, but they are keeping them for whatever reason. And then also, I think that asking goes farther than that. So people who live in, say, Manhattan, they are going to go visit people in Connecticut or people outside of the city who have guns. And so then it's, it becomes a practice that becomes more comfortable as you ask and, and is, is just one of those go-to questions that you always ask when you're at somebody's house. It's never, you know, when they say, no, we don't have any guns, or no one gets upset with you for asking the question. All right. The website is askingsaveskids.org. It is the Ask campaign. You can find resources and further information there. Thank you so much, Heidi, for joining us on the show. Yeah, thank you. So have you asked this? No, I've never, I've never asked this, and I definitely am feeling like I should. I mean, we live in Virginia, a place where there are definitely plenty of people who have guns, and we know about some people who have them because they have volunteered that information to us, or in one case because the person in the family works for a gun manufacturer and they have stuffed um, animals they've shot and killed all over their house. But we don't necessarily, we haven't asked that question, and you guys haven't either because you until now assume that no one in Brooklyn had a gun somehow, <laughs> which is bananas. <laughs> I don't mean no one, but, you know, we li- we don't live in Texas. Uh, do you think if the answer to the question is yes and then you probe and the, are told that the guns are stored safely, you would still be nervous about it or you'd be okay with it? I don't know. I would still be nervous about it. But yeah. I think this is a good segue to our next caller. Um, we are going to talk to uh, a mom of three and a firearms instructor who teaches a class in gun safety for parents of small children. Let's give her a call. All right, we've got Melody Lauer on the phone from Conrad, Iowa. Melody, you're the mom of three kids, and you also teach a class for parents of small children about how to safely carry a gun when you also have a child. What inspired that class? 
That class was inspired. It was kind of a long time in the making, but it was really kicked into high gear after, in December, the Iowa mom who, whose two-year-old ended up killing her in Walmart. That was really what inspired me to kind of get off the ground and really make it a reality because we're seeing too many firearms accidents that can be preventable with good quality training that people don't even know is out there because it's really not out there the way it should be. Now, you're a trained firearm instructor. And, yes, I am. And you have three kids. How old are your kids? I have a six-year-old, I have a three-year-old, and then I have a nine-month-old. Um, when other parents ask you about guns in your home before playdates, how do you respond? And are you glad that they've asked? Um, it's a touchy subject. I don't have a problem with it. I have actually not had anyone ask that question to me beforehand. And it's one of those questions where I think there's a lot of um, people aren't quite sure whether they are comfortable asking it, but it would not be a question that I would be offended if someone asked me at all. The reason I think a lot of people don't ask me the question is because a lot of people already know what I do. You know, I'm a firearms instructor. Fair <laughs> so it's enough. Pretty, it's pretty <laughs> much assumed that there are going to be firearms in my home. Now, I have had, um, I do have one person who does not allow her children over to my home. And despite what I have told her as far as safety, you know, we have two different safes in the house. Um, all of our firearms are definitely secured and locked up. But that's just something that she's not comfortable with, and I'm okay with that. So, so that uh, hasn't put, not, like, a crimp in your relationship. No, you don't no, secretly resent her. So whenever, and I, I think that would be an absolutely stupid thing to resent someone over. So uh, when we do playdates and stuff like that, we do playdates on neutral ground or I go over to her home. So it's not been a problem. So probably this doesn't apply to your nine-month-old. Maybe it does. I don't know. But how, what, what, have you, what do you, have you taught your kids about guns so far? Well, we started out with the Eddie Eagle program, which is a program through the NRA, which is um, they kind of little of a jingle, you know, if you find a gun, stop, don't touch it, leave the area, tell an adult. And we've basically started all of our children on that pretty much from birth. And they're pretty good about following those rules for the most part, not that we test them on it, but, um, you know, just something that we reiterate for them on a constant basis. What do you think? I mean, there seems to be a pretty stark divide between, you know, families that have guns and families that, that don't. And the kids of families like ours that, you know, our kids have never been around guns. Is there something that we should be teaching them, even though we won't have guns in our homes and we will presumably ask people when we send them to playdates if they have guns and if they're locked up safely? Like, what should our kids know about guns, even if they're not, you know, going to have them around on a regular basis? That is a really good question, and that's why I really think the Eddie Eagle program is perfect for people, whether you're for guns or against guns, because it really does teach kids across both sides that guns are not something to play with. They're not something to touch. And I, that teaching them especially, you know, stop, don't touch it, leave the area, tell an adult, uh, those are four basic rules that I'm pretty sure anyone, whether you're for guns or against them, can get on board with teaching their kids and I think are very, very important. I think, I mean, it's worth noting that, I mean, the rules are those because they're very clear and everyone agrees with them. But, it, uh, you know, research also shows that 
kids, even kids who have had that training or who've had that drilled in, sometimes because kids are kids and have bad impulse control, if they're presented with a gun, sometimes nevertheless they play with it. So just because your kid knows this, I want to make sure our listeners know, doesn't mean you are obviated from the need to keep your guns in safes. Oh, absolutely. And the other thing, they did an interesting, I think it was um, 2020, one of those um, kind of investigative news shows, did an actual study like this where they took guns, some of them were real, some of them were not, and they placed them around a, um, a playground. And a lot of kids did not follow those four rules. Some of the reasons they gave were, well, I thought it was a toy. Um, so we go even a little further in our home. And, of course, you're right. You're exactly right. That, that does not mean that you don't teach your ch- or, or keep your firearms secured away from your children. We all have kids who disobey our rules. So it should not be a stretch at all um, to think that your child will, will disobey those rules. But um, we even go a step further. If if one of our children thinks that a gun is a toy, we uh, we have them come and ask us, is this a real gun? Is this not a real gun? And then can I play with it? Because some people do not like their children even playing with fake guns and toy guns. And we think it's important for our children to have respect for those other people's wishes as well. So if they're in a home where they see something they think is a toy gun, we still want them to ask permission to whether or not they can play with it. That is great advice. Thank you. So, Melody Lauer, you're, you teach uh, your gun safety for parents of small children class at Crossroads in Johnston, Iowa. Thank you yes. so much for calling us and for chatting with us. Thanks, Melody. Thank you. All right. So, Allison, you asked me, but I'll ask you. If you have a, a friend of um, your son who, and you find out that they have guns in their home, even if they're locked up and the ammo is stored separately, how would you feel? Would you let your child go over there for a play date? I've not had this, uh, I haven't asked this question yet, so possibly my kids have already been in people's houses um, where there are guns, because I guess there are all these guns floating around Brooklyn that I wasn't aware of. (laughs) But I think no. My gut reaction is no. I mean, we hear all the time about, not all the time, but kids can shoot themselves, their siblings, their friends with guns, their accidents with guns, accidents that are preventable, their accidents with everything. But I feel like families with guns in their homes and little kids is like a disastrous mix. And I don't think I want to put my kids in that in that situation. We haven't really had to deal with it either. I mean, the best friend of Lyra's that I mentioned in the introduction of the segment, that best friendship split up not because of guns, but because he's a boy and she's a girl. And eventually they decided they wouldn't, that they're not allowed to be friends anymore. So we never had to put it to the test once we found out they had guns. But we haven't, the other houses we know of in our neighborhood where parents have guns, even though we know they're safe, we have tried to just as subtly as possible invite them over to our house and not have our kids go over to their house. And it means we decline a lot of play dates. And I, and I think the what we should change about our behavior is not that decision, but we should stop being pussies about it. And we should just say, ask the parents and talk to them about it and tell them, look, we just don't feel comfortable. We really like your kid and we want them to come over to our house. But this is a decision we've made as opposed to just like sneaking around, which is what we currently do. I wonder if my calculation would be different if I lived somewhere where like 
it just felt like it was like there was like a huge gun culture and it was the norm and everybody hunted. And even if I didn't participate in it, it would just feel much more like this does feel like all like, you know, it's like this secret thing that you don't right. know what's happening inside people's homes. If it was more out in the open and more part of culture, maybe I would be more comfortable with it. <laughs> all right. Listeners, we want to hear from you. you s- send us an email at mom and dad at slate.com. Talk to us about whether you've had this conversation with uh, neighbors and parents of your kids' friends. Tell us if you have a gun and how you keep it in your house and how you feel when other parents ask you about the guns in your home. We really want to hear what you have to say. We're still both, as you can tell, coming to grips with our feelings on this issue, and we'd love to hear from you. Okay, let's move on to recommendations. Dan. Uh, I am recommending a picture book by a high school friend of mine. Uh, It is called In Mary's Garden. It is by Tina and Carson Kugler. Uh, It is a picture book about a legendary artist from my hometown, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The artist is named Mary Knoll, but if you grew up in the northern suburbs of Milwaukee, you probably know Mary Knoll's house on Beach Drive, except you probably called it the Witch's House Mm -hmm. because of the crazy sculptures and figures and fountains that Mary Knoll built outside over the 50-plus years she lived there. When I was in high school, we used to drive there at night and dare each other to touch one of the creatures. I think that was a a rite of passage for many Milwaukee children growing up. But in fact, Mary Knoll was a wonderful, formally trained artist who spent her life making fascinating paintings, sculptures, and jewelries and not giving a fuck about what anyone else thought. Um, Tina and Carson's book, In Mary's Garden, is about Mary's life, but it's mostly about the joy of making art out of the things around you and it is perfect for a creative three to seven year old i really loved it lyra really loved it harper really loved it it's totally adorable and i recommend it highly that sounds great i'm gonna recommend iMotion, the stop motion animation app oh yeah yeah have you used it yes i mean obviously that was yeah yeah, it's so fun uh yeah so this is basically what we did for like four hours on saturday Sam had been doing stop-motion animation movies in preschool, and the teacher had sent us one that like, had a little whatever tag on it that made by iMotion, so I downloaded it to my phone. It's really, really easy. First, we did some where they did you know like eight different drawings, and we shot them and made an animation out of that. And then they did it with Legos, which is definitely like way more fun. Mm-hmm. And you know we started with just four different scenes, and then we ended up with like 20 different scenes, and they really liked experimenting with it. Also, like... It takes a long time. The Lego thing. No, I mean, it's in a great <laughs> right, in a way. Good like, way. Yeah, yeah. I was like, okay, build, you know, you have to build the set and then you have to build them like fighting like this and then fighting like this. And that was great. They were like super into it. It was fun for me, except that they wouldn't take too much. Like I tried to direct some of the, yeah. they were the directors. I was a cinematographer and they were not into a lot of my, like, I think we should have a close up here. And they were like, no. I feel, I feel like Emmanuel Lubeshke has the same problem with a lot of the directors he works <laughs> with. But it was really fun and it's very easy to use. The only thing I haven't figured out yet is the sound. I mean, you can, I think if if you have like garage band then you can actually yeah but we had we didn't get that far but super fun iMotion great recommendation and that's our show please email us at mom and dad at slate.com with your thoughts about today's show parenting tips and suggestions for future topics please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and please call us with your questions at 424-255-7833 thanks to our producer Ann Hepperman Joel Meyer is the managing producer of Slate Podcasts Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts Mom and Dad are fighting as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Thanks to our guests, Bonnie Rockman, Heidi Human, and Melody Lauer. Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Allison. And thank you all for listening. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.